This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. How, how are all of your consciousnesses doing? Are your knee consciousnesses complaining yet? <laughs> Lower back consciousness? So yesterday I, um, I just introduced a little bit about the Yogacara school of Buddhism. Um, I don't think I actually talked about the word Yogacara. So, um, but do you, did you all this morning, did you notice our chant when we chanted the ancestors that we chanted uh, Vasubandhu's name? 21st, he's the 21st ancestor. Vasubandhu. And we also chanted Nagarjuna's name as well. So these two great figures are in our lineage. And as I mentioned, the Yogacara school died out as, a, as its own school of practice. Um, however, the teachings of Yogacara completely uh, pervaded all of Buddhism, uh, Mahayana Buddhism after after it. Yoga chara. So do you know what yoga means? Unity yoga. <laughs> yoke. Yoke, yeah. Yuj, which means unity, right? To unite, to join together. Connection, to connect. The chara means practice. So it's the practice of unifying. A unifying practice is yoga chara. And as I mentioned, Vasubandhu uh, started off in the, uh, the so-called lesser vehicle, the Theravada school. I'm not sure if it was Theravada. We say Theravada, but it, Theravada is actually only one of many of the early Buddhist uh, schools. Uh, Theravada is kind of the way of the elders. And as I mentioned uh, yesterday in yesterday's talk, um, as I mentioned yesterday in yesterday's talk, the first turning of the wheel of Buddhism, think of that as the um, as the kind of the representative realist school in Buddhism. So a lot of the Abhidhamma, a lot of work was spent in categorizing systematically all of the teachings of the Buddha. And in thousands upon thousands of lists of what are called dharmas or elements of consciousness. It's very complex. I've never fully studied Abhidhamma in part because people said, oh, it's really complex. It's very realist. And it's uh, um, a huge part of our tradition in the sense that um, it's one of the three baskets, the Tripitaka of early Buddhism, the sutras, the Abhidhamma, and the Shastras. And Abhidhamma teachings, so for example, when I read the 30 verses, I kind of out, Vasubandhu outlines a lot of the sort of the mental factors. So he talks about some of the afflictive mental factors and the non-afflictive or beneficial mental factors. And so all this categorization of trying to sort, sort all of what the Buddha's teachings were pointing towards and relating that to a meditator's practice experience. 
Okay, so again, very based in phenomena, not based in ideology or rationality. It's based in experience. And so Vasubandhu and his half-brother Asanga both were steeped in that tradition, the early Buddhist tradition, and both of them became converts at the time when, as I mentioned, the turning of the millennia, Mahayana was on a massive rise. And to say that the Mahayana and Theravada or the Hinayana schools were, they weren't separated for centuries. For centuries, you had monasteries where there would be both kinds of practitioners practicing. And um, if you ever have a chance to read, uh, if you're interested in, in this spread of Mahayana and India during that time, uh, the History of Buddhistic Kingdoms is a fantastic history book written by a Chinese monk who went traveling and categorized, you know, cataloged his experiences. And he talks about going from monastery to monastery where thousands of practitioners were all living together and practicing together in both schools harmoniously. So sometimes we think of, you know, oh, it's this sect and that sect and that they're not connected or they're separated and somehow. And while that's true, they're also deeply connected and very much uh, in practice together. But Yogacara was born out of this um, conversion, maybe you could call it, of Vasubandhu and his half-brother Asanga. <clears throat> so yesterday I, uh, I read the 30 verses. How was that for you, for those of you who are here? Did it... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I posted it, the one that I read, the translation that I read. I posted it on the wall by the earth, and, uh, and I give you full encouragement and permission to read it during this retreat, even though there is an admonition against reading. However, uh, as I said yesterday, if you find that it disturbs your mind and takes you away from being present to your physicality and your mentality, and you find that it's kind of upsetting, even minor, minor upset. It's like you can choose not to, you know, just, uh, even if the lectures are upsetting to you, you can choose to sit, just sit, and let the words wash over. Because that's what we're doing primarily, is staying present, allowing ourselves to have this space and this time for no other purpose other than waking up. There's nothing else we need to be doing here. Of course, I will say that waking up happens in myriad ways, and it can happen while you're in the midst of serving, while you're in the midst of chanting, while you're picking your nose out in the courtyard, in the, in the side yard, whatever. Right? It can happen any time. So, I think it is a mistake to think that it is only through our formal sitting that waking up happens. And in, in particular, noticing those transitional spaces where we get up from formal sitting and you know, move into kinhin or move into a meal or move into work practice to really stay close to your breath and your body during those transitions um, widens the container. 
So I thought that what I would do to start um, in this talk is to read the 30 verses again, but to read a different translation. It has been translated many times, and sometimes it's interesting to have a side-by-side uh, -side translations just so you can see how, how differing they can be uh, and what different aspects are illuminated. So this is called, this text is called The 30 Verses of Vasubandhu, the Trimsika Vijnapti Karga. Whatever indeed is the variety of ideas of self and elements that prevails, it occurs in the transformation of consciousness. Such transformation is threefold, namely the resultant, what is called mentation, as well as the concept of the object. Herein, the consciousness called alaya, with all its seeds, is the resultant. It is unidentified in terms of concepts of object and location, and is always possessed of activities such as contact, attention, feeling, perception, and volition. In that context, the neutral feeling is uninterrupted and is not defined, so are contact, etc., and it proceeds like the current of a stream. It, i.e. Elias, dissipation occurs in our hot ship. Associated with this process and depending upon it occurs the consciousness called manas, which is the nature of mentation. Endowed with the four types of defilements, constantly concealed and undefined, involving self-view, self-confusion, self-esteem, and self-love, and also possessed of other forms of contact, etc., i.e. attention, feeling, perception, and volition, born of such self-view, etc., and made of such self-view, etc., it is not found in the worthy one. Again, we're talking about manas, the second transformation of consciousness here. It is not found in the worthy one, nor in the state of cessation, nor in the supra-mundane path. Such is the second transformation. The third represents the acquisition of the sixfold object. And this is either good, bad, or indeterminate. Again, you can see the classification of things like this, right? This is, it, it fits into one of these buckets. It's either good, bad, or indeterminate. That acquisition of the sixfold object is associated with wholesome psychological conditions, both universal and particular, and similarly with primary as well as secondary defilements. That includes the threefold feeling. The first, i.e. universals, are contact, etc., yearning, resolve, memory, together with concentration and wisdom, are particulars. Confidence, shame, and remorse, the triad consisting of absence of greed, etc., effort, diligence, and nonviolence are wholesome psychological conditions. The primary defilements are lust, 
aversion and confusion, pride, view, and doubt. Furthermore, anger, enmity, hypocrisy, malice, envy, avarice, along with deception, fraudulence, self-esteem, violence, shamelessness, remorselessness, deceitfulness, stupidity, lack of confidence, sluggishness, indolence, and forgetfulness, distraction, inattentiveness, worry, sloth, <clears throat> reflection, and investigation. These are the secondary defilements, the last being twofold, either defied, uh, defiled or non-defiled, the last two being reflection and investigation. Those can be either defiled or non-defiled. The arising of the five forms of consciousness, together or separately, within the foundational consciousness is like the waves on the water. The manifestation of mental consciousness takes place always, except in the sphere of non-perception, in the two attainments and in the state of torpor occasioned by insensibility and absence of thought. Thus, thought involves this transformation of consciousness. For that reason, what has thus been thought of does not exist. Therefore, all of this is mere concept. Consciousness indeed possesses all seeds. Its transformation occurs in a variety of ways. It proceeds on the basis of mutual dependence as a result of which such and such thoughts are born. Karmic dispositions, together with the two dispositions of grasping, either grasping as in pulling towards or pushing away, produces another resultant when the previous resultant has waned. Whatever thought through which an object is thought of as a substance, that indeed is a fabrication. It is not evident. A dependent self-nature is a thought that has arisen depending upon conditions. However, the absence of the one prior to it is always the accomplished. Thus, it, i.e. the accomplished, should be declared to be neither identical nor different from the dependent, like impermanence, etc. When that, i.e. the dependent, is not perceived, this too is not perceived. The non-substantiality of all elements has been preached for the sake of establishing the threefold non-sustainability of the three types of substances. The first is non-substantial in terms of characteristics. The other, again, is one that possesses no self-nature and as such is a different form of non-substantiality. The third is the ultimate meaning of events because it is also suchness. Since it remains such all the time, it indeed is a mere concept. As long as consciousness does not terminate in mere concept, so long will the dispositions for the twofold grasping not cease. Indeed, one who on account of one's grasping were to place some thing before him or herself, saying, this is mere concept, will not stop at nearness. When consciousness with object is not obtained, then there being no object, one is established in the state of mere concept, for there is no grasping for it. It is without thought, 
and without object, it is also the supra-mundane knowledge. Through the destruction of the twofold depravities, there is reversion of the source of such depravities. This indeed is the realm free from influxes. It is unthinkable, wholesome, and stable. It is the serene body of release. This is called the doctrine of the great sage. All clear? <laughs> so this morning, as we were chanting during service, we were chanting the Shin Shin Ming, and I was getting very excited in service. Um, Bruce, could you hand me a, a book? I don't have the copy of the Shin Shin Ming with me. that sound like they were echoed from what you had read yesterday. Absolutely, yeah. I never really thought of the Shin Shin Ming as a Yogacara text, but then this morning I was like, oh, it is, it's totally Yogacara text. <laughs> <laughs> the practice instruction of the Shin Shin Ming, how many of you were in the class? Yeah, so the practice instruction... What did you take from the class as the practice instruction from the Shin Shin Ming? Have you read the Shin Shin Ming? Well, you did this morning. <laughs> <laughs> the more you think and talk about these matters, the farther you are from the truth. <laughs> <laughs> and here we are. <laughs> Do you all concur? Let go and things are as they are. Yeah, let go and things are as they are. Notice when you're clinging. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if you can't let the first instruction is kinda of like, just don't think. You know, and don't have any preferences. And if that doesn't work, then then what? Then notice your thinking. Notice the clinging. Right? Be with the feelings of what it feels like to cling. What it feels like to have something sticky. Right? It's like it's stuck to you, you can't get rid of it. Let's see, there's that one line that I'm going to look for. Ah, well here, do not abide in dualistic views. So in terms of the, the Yogacara, the, uh, the 30 verses of Vasubandhu, the description, it's basically set out in four parts in the 30 verses. But the whole endeavor is trying to get to this, this thing that we do, that consciousness does, which is to divide and separate. It's very handy. Without it, we wouldn't really be human, right? However, the problematic nature of it is that we think it's real and fixed. Anybody not, not believe me when I say that? That we think of ourselves as being me. And actually, even though we have this idea that yes, of course, things change, we think of it as not changing, as being eternal. You can't imagine it not existing, for one. Right. However, in all of the wisdom teachings, as I mentioned yesterday, what we think of as real and hold to be real 
when you actually really look at it, it doesn't pan out. And this was Nagarjuna's whole endeavor, was to show how each of these elements that we think of as being so-called real, as in essentially or eternally real, when you push on it, when you spend the time to analyze it in all kinds of different ways, what you find is that you can keep peeling back the layers and you don't find that nugget, that indivisible atom, does not exist. And yet, psychologically, how do we get around in the world if we don't think of this body and mind as being mine that I need to protect, that I need to save, keep safe from other things, right? If we don't think that the product that our company makes is real, we probably won't be a very good employee. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've never been in a company that made a product, but yes, I can understand. <laughs> Do not abide in dualistic views. Carefully avoid seeking them. If there is even a trace of this and that, the mind essence will be lost in confusion. The two exist because of the one, but do not hold even to this one. When the one mind is undisturbed in the way, the 10,000 dharmas offer no offense. When the th a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the usual way. So this is, a, this is exactly pointing to that. It ceases to exist in the way that we kind of think it does. It's not saying that there's nothing there. To say that there's nothing there would be nihilism, which again is one, uh, one of the, the extremes of this eternalism and nihilism. When discriminating thoughts do not arise, the usual mind, the usual mind, ceases to exist. When thought objects vanish, the thinking subject also vanishes. When the mind vanishes, objects vanish. Object is object because of subject. Subject is subject because of the object. Know that the two are originally one emptiness. In this emptiness, the two are indistinguishable, and each contains in itself the whole world. So, in the Genjo Koan, it, there's a which we will chant sometime Sunday. When we chant it on Sunday, there's this uh, metaphor for this of the moonlight reflected in a drop of water that the entire, no matter how small the droplet is, the entire moon can be reflected in it. It could be a great ocean that it reflects the moon. It could be a small dewdrop that reflects the moon. That everything can be contained within this, the, the entire universe is contained within this small particle. So this is the all is one, one is all, right? This is the, a conundrum in philosophy from the beginning of time, is how do you reconcile the many and the one? And you have so many different philosophers coming up with like, oh, it's like the, it's this, this is the one. And everything is a reflection of that, or everything comes from that. Right. So I want to get back to this, um, this text and talk a little bit about these, these parts. So in the very beginning, it talks about these three transformations of consciousness, and I'll, I'll explain what they are. The first one that's described in the 30 verses is the transformation of consciousness known as alaya. In the Yogacara system, there are 
eight consciousnesses. It's a model. It's not meant to be, as I, as I mentioned yesterday, I do not think it is meant to be ontologically real. That would seem so silly for Vasubandhu and Asanga to say, there's no real things, it's all mere concept, and yet this is real. Right? And as I mentioned yesterday, Nagarjuna was very careful not to construct the emptiness of everything as, I mean, he, he wanted to use that emptiness to empty out the concept of emptiness as well. So I don't think that Vasubandhu and Asanga were uh, asserting that this model is the way it is. It's more like this is a description of how our mind operates as a way of, of being able to get close to um, being able to transform these consciousnesses at the base. There's a, a nice book on this, on the 30 verses, by Thich Nhat Hanh called Transformation at the Base. I think it has, actually has a different title now. Um, but he writes his own verses that are quite beautiful and poetic, as Thich Nhat Hanh is. So this, trans, this entire, this eight consciousness model is basically, it's a metaphor or a story about how the self, in the sense of selfing, now you all know what selfing is, that feeling of me, it's very strong. If you don't have a sense of it, try being falsely accused. It comes right up. <laughs> no, that's not me. I would never do, you know. Right? It's, so it's a metaphor. The eight consciousnesses are a metaphor of how a self is born over and over and over again. And in the 30 verses, it calls this process like a raging torrent like a fast-moving stream. It's, it's perpetual, just rushes by constantly. Right? And we can see this in our meditation practice. The self just seems to keep coming up and saying things to us. Um, okay, so in the eight consciousness model, let's see, I'm gonna start from the, I'm gonna start from the first through the sixth, actually the first five. First five consciousnesses are sense consciousnesses. We're all very familiar with these. Sense consciousnesses. So, and we chanted them this morning as well. Eye, ear, nose, tongue, body. Sixth, mind. Mind consciousness. So eye consciousness, and the way that all of these consciousnesses work is that there's some contact that's made with the consciousness. The consciousness makes contact with some kind of an object. Something is seen as, it's seen as separate. Right. So for eye consciousness, I see this book. Okay, there's an there's a eye object, which is the book. Then there's the eye organ, which is somewhere around the eyeball. But it's not just the eyeball. It's the eyeball is necessary because if you took the eyeball out, it wouldn't be able to have eye consciousness around the eye object. But it's not sufficient. The eyeball is not sufficient. Why? If you have just an eyeball, does it see? Or does it need something else, like a visual cortex? Right. So the eye consciousness is what happens when the eye organ touches an eye object. So when the eye organ, which is somewhere around the place of the eyeball, photons come from the book touching 
from this eye object, and conscious eye consciousness is born. Visual stimulation, a sight is born. That's eye consciousness, it's very straightforward. Same thing with nose consciousness. With nose consciousness, it's, all of this is physical, right? This is all requires contact. So nose consciousness is with some kind of a, a, a molecule is, nose, is the nose object that touches the nose organ, which again, it's not really this, but it's around here. And when those touch, nose consciousness is born and a smell happens. So a smell is just nose consciousness. A sight is eye consciousness. A taste is from the tongue. Again, a molecule. Uh, uh, ear consciousness, sound waves. Right? There's a contact that's made and a consciousness appears from that contact. Now, those are the first five and then let's get to the sixth. The sixth is mind consciousness. What mind consciousness does is it's able, it gives the ability to discern between all the other consciousnesses so that you know this is an eye consciousness or this is a nose consciousness. Right? It can also see mental objects like thoughts. <clears throat> now, one of the things that happens when this object goes into, like, hits the eye uh, uh, organ or the, the sense organ, when the sense object hits the sense organ and the consciousness is, is born at that point, the mind consciousness apprehends it and it can have thoughts about it, right? Ooh, that's a nice flower. That one's uh, brighter than that one. So again, pretty baseline. There's still, there doesn't, not, there's no self that's emerged out of this necessarily, right? Now, so those are the first six. The second, the seventh, and the eighth are a little tricky. I'm gonna jump to the eighth first before I talk about the seventh. The eighth is called Alaya or storehouse consciousness. As uh, in the text, Vasubandhu says, herein the consciousness called Alaya with all its seeds is the resultant. If you think of all of the karmic actions that have been taken in your lifetime, and actually before your lifetime, that pertain to you. By karmic actions, what do I mean? What's meant by a karmic action? Anything you did that had an effect? That has intention. It doesn't have to be attention that you are consciously aware of. <laughs> it makes it kind of tricky. Basically, anything that you do, any action that you take, is an example of that, that has an effect is an example of a karmic action, something that is coming from uh, your body and mind, but that you either decide to do or you end up doing with some intention. 
that plants a seed in the alaya, this storehouse consciousness. Again, this is just a model. The seeds that are planted can be wholesome seeds or unwholesome seeds, right? So give me an example of a wholesome seed that might be planted. Compassion. Hmm? Compassion. Compassion, yeah. You can basically uh, decide to do a compassion practice or you can just spontaneously feel compassionately towards a person or a, an animal or something, right? And that plants a seed that then will come to some fruition. So the, the analogy here is that seeds are planted and then they grow. They grow into fruits. And those are the fruits of our karma. So if we plant good seeds, we'll have good fruits. If we plant unwholesome seeds, then we'll have some results that maybe we don't like so much. So for example, we decide in a, in a, you know, a fit of, self, of selfing that we want to shove the person in front of us at the line at the grocery store out of the way and we you know, get there first. That you know, would uh, lead to some karmic resultant based on the, this model, we're planting a seed that's unwholesome. Unwholesome means that it's um, selfish, that it's uh, concerned with self, that it's steeped in ignorance. Ignorance being, uh, in Buddhism, ignorance is a very technical term. Okay, so it doesn't mean just like unaware, but ignorance means what? In the it's the first of the twelvefold uh, chain. Disbelieving that all of this is real, that our self is real. Ignorance is based on this believing in this artificial self that appears so forcefully to us, but believing that that appearance is reality. That's the definition of ignorance. Okay. Can I ask yes. a question? Sure. I guess it seems to me more lately, is it true that you could say that karma is all the things that come from our conditioned mind? Um, meaning that if you, if you do something with compassion, If you do something with compassion, yeah. yeah, you might be planting a wholesome seed, but ultimately, and this is something that when I first heard this, I was blown away. I've mentioned this in Dharma Talks before. When Shohaku Okamura said in a Sashin, he said, when we sit zazen, we're not creating any karma at all. Not good karma, not bad karma. We're allowing our karma to exhaust itself, meaning... We're allowing all the seeds that have been planted, whether good nor, or bad, the seeds that are planted are selfing seeds. So if you have a sense, and, and the things are mixed too, right? So you could have, do an action that's based in, you know, this is going to make me feel good, or this is going to be good for everybody. And if it has a sense of self in it, then it has a karmic, even though it's wholesome, it's planting a wholesome seed, but it still keeps you on the chain of uh, karmic rebirth in this model. Now, 
because we all are endowed with Buddha nature, which is non-selfish, that is naturally compassionate, naturally understands the interconnection of all beings, it wouldn't do anything harmful because it, it fully understands that, right? So actions that come that are not karmic actions, it's tricky because self, you can find that, that subtle self in almost everything we do, right? But you know the difference, right, between a, uh, a selfish act of benevolence <laughs> and an unselfish act of benevolence, one that's not even with regard to self. You're not, there's no self there. It's just an action that's done maybe in the moment. You know, a classic example is you see somebody, you know, a child uh, drowning in the river, and you just don't even think. You just jump in and, and grab it, right? Selfless act. Now, if you're sitting there thinking, I'm going to get a reward if I do, you know, then it's like, oh, it's not, maybe not so wholesome, right? So yes? Then, would you call that karma then? Is that a karmic action? Basically, almost everything you do is going to well, have a karmic was, result. Oh, without even thinking. I don't think so. I don't think that this model, that that's karmic. In a sense, it's you're resting in your original nature which is always there and is covered over like clouds covering the sky. The sky is always there. And the karmic stuff, whether good, bad, or neutral, the karmic stuff is the clouds that cover it. And when we sit zazen, we're, we're getting in touch with, we're letting go of self over and over again and being with what? What's left when we let go of self? What? Everything. <laughs> and in particular, we experience that through awareness. Bruce, did you say that? Yeah, and I don't know if this is a helpful way of looking at it or a question or if it's not the right time, so I, I don't need an answer. But in your description of planting seeds, it occurs to me that it could be very difficult to distinguish seeds from fruits. For instance, there was a time when I was at a coffee house for whatever, I, I was waiting for someone to box up my leftovers. And they apologized that it was taking so long. And I, I don't know what happened. And I don't know where this came from, what it, but, but I just found myself saying genuinely, without thinking about it, look, I don't ever want to be in so much of a hurry that it stresses another person out. It's okay, take your time. Now, was that, for example, <laughs> yeah. is that me planting a, 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 a wholesome seed for later, to what extent is that the fruit of some wholesome seed that I planted in the past flowering at that moment? Yeah, and, and is mm -hmm. it, that's know, a great like, question. I, I think this. I think it's useful at one level to distinguish between seeds and fruits. But when I think of concrete examples, it gets all mixed up. Tim, do you want to respond I, to that? I vaguely remember from Chuck Nahum's book that he would often use the, the phrasing watering the seeds. Yes. So that the seeds, we're not actually planting seeds, like the seeds have kind of always existed in some way. And actually, and so in that, that case, it's more helpful maybe to think of in every moment we're, we're watering some seeds. Yes, yes, exactly. <clears throat> it's like that story of the two wolves, right? Which wolf do you feed? Right. Yeah. Nick? Um, <clears throat> to tie this into the... Um, the, the other metaphor that you, that you used of saving the child selflessly 
it seems like in the instance that you dive into the river, it's a selfless act. But you can't help but water the seed afterwards. <laughs> back on it. Like, oh, I did a good thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Even if it was selfless in the instant. Yeah, and what you do with it is really important too. You can, you know, you know, you know, you've seen this happen maybe in yourself and in others where somebody does something that's selfless and good, but then they can't let go of it. They yeah. keep wanting to say it. Oh, look. <laughs> and, and that's another example of that. Bruce, getting back to you, and, and this question of like, what is planting, what is watering, the, the technical term is perfuming, to perfume the seeds. It's another, I mean, technology calls it watering, but the, the word is, uh, the Sanskrit term is like to perfume it. Interesting, right? But, but yes, it's, it's almost like when we do something, it stimulates something that may already be there. It may be something we've never done before that we don't have any, and, and that might be considered planting in this metaphor. But definitely when we, um, we have a choice to water, which, which plants do we want to water? Do we want to water the, you know, the, not to be down on nettles, but like, you know, the pokey nettles <laughs> that, you know, take over our garden? Or do we want to water the, you know, the camellia and the, what, you know, right? So it's like, what do we, what do we want to do? And this gets back to just basic, very basic practice with, and which uh, Sashin is so beneficial for, is that things can slow down. When we have a dedicated space like this, where we're rinsing our experience in nothing <laughs> other than our you know, con, you know, careful attention to the little details of our breath and our body, where we spend a lot of time in open awareness as opposed to the, the mind, right? The talks, he talks about the, the usual mind, which is the mind of busy, busy, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. And it's just got this on incessant chatter. When we sit over and over, period after period, that incessant chatter does start to loosen. And we start to spend more time with just open awareness. It may take four days or longer. Right? But in terms of this, um, your example, Bruce, of being at the coffee shop, you could think of it as the fruit is you're not getting upset, right? That could be the fruit. The watering of that seed could be you're letting the server know, right? And that then, and you, you're, you may have surprised yourself in what you've said and been like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, and, and there's the selfing after the fact. <laughs> and it, it might not I even, use this yeah. as an example Later. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and again, it, it you know whether or not like I don't want to. Well, we'll get into this in terms of these different transformations, but I don't want to get into this way of like we're going to become like bulldogs, like or or bloodhounds, like sniffing for any selfing at all that we're going to then you know because that's just another form of selfing. Right. Yeah, I, I think to use a more hypothetical, but real and we've all experienced an example getting to the idea of choice like let's say someone driving driving's always good you know practice metaphor right yeah. so someone cuts me off or i'm in a four-way stop and the other person i was there first and they went instead <laughs> sometimes i notice myself letting that go mm. and stepping back detaching and not 
like like the coffee shop. I'm just like, but as often, or probably a lot more often, I react in a less wholesome way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe involving my horn or my voice. <laughs> and, and so I think, and maybe this is getting back to the the, the Xin Xin Ming in, in some sense as well that. Choice is a useful term, mm -hmm. but I think instead of looking at it at, or framing it as I'm going to make the right choice, I need to make the right choice, it's more like sometimes I see myself taking the, the wholesome fork and sometimes the less wholesome, and I think it's more useful for me at least in a, in a practice perspective to just watch which one I'm doing. Yeah, yeah. And instead of like, all right, Irritant happens. What shall I choose? You know, right. it, it doesn't it, happen. It's not like yeah. conscious and deliberately mm -hmm. planned out. It's just more like it, it, it's more like after the fact, immediately after the fact, going, "Oh, that's the choice." Hmm. Let's now let's look at the resultant. And let's, I think let's maybe see what happens. I think maybe that's where the planting and watering might come into play because it's mm -hmm. too late for that time. Yeah. But you are planting whatever, yes. anticipating the next time, and maybe you'll take the other Right. It's like the koan where the teacher says, sometimes I raise my eyebrows and blink. Sometimes I don't raise my eyebrows and blink. And it's like, what? let's see which what happens when. Okay. okay, so getting back to this eight consciousnesses. So Alaya, the storehouse consciousness. Alaya, by the way, just... Um, so the, the Himalayas, same word. The Alaya is the same. Himalaya. Storehouse of snow. The Alaya is means storehouse. Right. So the Himalaya is like the Himalaya Mountains. Yes. Right. right. Storehouse of snow. Yeah. So these we, we know these words. Um, so the Alaya consciousness is the is the eighth consciousness transformation consciousness. And as um, Vasubandhu talks about it, or describes it, he says, it is unidentified in terms of concept of object and location. So you can't find it. You can't like go to Alaya. Reserve a table there. <clears throat> it is always possessed of activities such as co contact, attention, feeling, perception, and volition. It is always going. It is unceasing. The storehouse of all of our seeds, of karmic seeds, and, and the ability to water in individual seeds is always present. It's always there. Now the second transformation is called, and this is the seventh consciousness, which is interesting because in the Sanskrit, we call them all consciousnesses, but in the Sanskrit, it actually doesn't have the word consciousness in it. So all the other ones have the word vijnana, which means consciousness. So mano vijnana is mind consciousness. Alaya vijnana is storehouse consciousness. Um, all the six organs, those all are consciousnesses. And the same, they use the same word of vijnana, which has at its root the vij, the v, vi, means to divide. So already you see that built into this notion of consciousness is this dividing aspect, the aspect that we're talking about of dividing self into other, 
all of it, all consciousnesses have this, this dividing aspect to them. However, manas is just called manas. It's not called manas vijnana, which is interesting in this list of consciousnesses. So why is that? What is manas? Manas is considered the defiling or discriminating consciousness. So he says, associated with this process, the process of alaya, and depending upon it, occurs the consciousness called manas, which is the nature of mentation, thinking. Endowed with the four types of defilements, constantly concealed, so we can't get at manas, constantly concealed and undefined, but it involves self-view, self-confusion, self-esteem, and self-love. These are four of the, the four main kleshas or defilements. Uh, self-love is an interesting one. I know that um, it, you know, when we hear self-love as being a defilement, it kind of like, we mean self-love as a defilement. But it means self-cherishing, like to, to cherish me over others is self-love. Then self-view is, uh, is just the nature of ignorance, to have a view of self self-confusion, and self-esteem. Right. <clears throat> and, then it's, and then he says, it's also possessed of forms of contact and attention, feeling, perception, volition. It is born of self-view, self-love, self-esteem, and self-confusion, and it's made of those. It is not found in the worthy one. So Buddhas don't have manas nor in the state of cessation or the super-mundane path. So it's not found in arhatship. This manas, this considered the defiling consciousness, what it does is it ferries between alaya and mind consciousness and creates a story. So it basically looks, this manas kind of looks at alaya, at the seeds of alaya, all the karmic background, all the baggage, all the conditioning that went into making you, you, it, Manas looks at that and creates a self and says, ah, this is me. I have these memories. I have these experiences. Me. <laughs> okay, so it basically goes between the monovijnana, uh, mono the mind consciousness, which is what looks at and discerns and plays with all the, all the sense objects, right? And all of that, no, there's no self necessarily with the first six consciousnesses. It's Manas that takes Alaya, ferries it back to mind, uh, mind consciousness, and creates a me. And this is the nature of mentation. Right? This is, uh, maybe you can even call this the nature of, of sentience. Yes, Cole? Is, could you call manas then like the process of selfing? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think so. Okay, then, so this is, so any questions about these eight consciousnesses and the model so far? Bruce, did you have something? No, I was just going to say it's self-in-consciousness. Yes, the self-in-consciousness. Yes? Are those, uh, is the storehouse, like, <laughs> it's not like a bad question, but are those like your own seeds or are those like, you know, yes, like good question. Seeds, yes, this is a great question. And... It's interesting because 
I don't know the answer to that. I've heard of an individual store consciousness and also so-called collective self, uh, store, storehouse consciousness. So for example, if you think of it, if you back up and say there are no selves, there are pieces that we can, there are appearance that appear as selves, there are pieces of this puzzle that appear as communities. There are pieces that appear as culture, right? They're all mixed in together, right? So in terms of a collective alaya, you could definitely say that all of us share a lot of the same seeds because of our being raised in a particular culture, right? But I don't think that Vasubandhu went into detail about whether there was collective, unconscious, uh, collective uh, alaya or individual. Right? But you can think of it as if there's no... What, what I call me, right, is just a grouping. And actually everything that we call anything is just a grouping of conditions that have arisen in a moment that we then call it something. This is a grouping of elements that has arisen into the form of what we call a book. Is it really a book? And what does that mean? You is the culture you grew up in, so that becomes part of it, too. Right, right. It's convention. And this is what's meant by the conventional truth of things, as opposed to the ultimate truth of things. With the ultimate truth of things, there can be no things. In this sense, all is one. Now, the fact that, now think of it as waves on the water. You have this body of water and waves, individual waves come up. Is that a thing? Can we isolate that wave from the water? Oh, we can't. And even if you track the wave, the wave, we say it's the same wave that's over here and over here and over here and over here as it hits the shore. It's the same wave as the one the surfer caught. Is it the same wave? Is it the same water? Not at all. So what is it? So you can see when you do this, when you analyze the, the elements that we think of as being fixed and real, they're not. So I have on this in my notes. Consciousness, while reflecting its object, passes through these various transformations. The transformations of the six consciousnesses up to manovijnana, the transformation of the second consciousness, the, uh, the manas, and the consciousness of the alaya. So when something appears, this object, it goes through these various transformations to then render it in, almost in, it's impossible for the object to look like anything other than this to our to our consciousness right so when i i uh read the poem yesterday which i'll read again because it's so short the sarusawa pond as at the clapping of hands again what does that yield it yields a sound a sound which is ear consciousness Ear consciousness is, is, comes at the clapping of hands. The carp comes swimming for food. The birds fly away in fright. And a maiden comes carrying tea. Sarusawa pond. Again, so based on these transformations of consciousness, a different result happens. And as I mentioned yesterday, 
each of these things, which are, are completely varied, right? Each of these actions are completely appropriate given the conditions of the experiencer, the one, the one having the consciousness. However, you can mess with the carp and the birds and the maiden. <laughs> you can have a, you know, a robot doing the clapping, so there's no food to be found, or there's no danger or threat from the robot, or the maiden comes bearing tea, but there's no one to serve tea to, right? Is that a mistake? Maybe, but not really, right? It's still an appropriate action. It just didn't seem to uh, line up with what was happening. So again, going back to this, um, this model, you have the, these consciousnesses, which you can think of as being like the bare experience, with nothing added. So when a smell uh, reaches your nose, it just registers as a smell, right? It could have all kinds of a texture, you can have all kinds of descriptors of it, right? But you can think of it, if you think of the, the, these sense consciousnesses as bare perception, before anything happens. So for example, let's say that you're walking along or you're sitting in the zendo and suddenly the smell hits your nose, your nose consciousness appears because there's you know, a nose uh, object touching, making contact with the nose organ, right? And it registers and manovijnana registers. Oh, a smell. Wow, something, something's happening in my, <laughs> my sitting practice. You notice the smell. Now, let's say the smell is, um, it stimulates something in Alaya. There's an experience that you've had. You know the smell, that you've had an experience with this smell before. It smells like a dying mammal in the, in, you know, somewhere, right? What does, what happens? It stimulates that seed and an aversion arises. Right? And maybe you had an experience sitting in the zendo where you were, you know, for seven days you sat in the seat and there was this, you know, rat that had died in the walls or something. And you were stimulated into this. Now, now you're really worked up because you're like, how can I get out of here? And right? what started off as just a bare sense consciousness of nose consciousness can cascade into... You know, modest gets involved, Aliyah gets involved, and suddenly a story can be created. Right? When we can study, this is what we're studying when we sit in Sashin. We're studying the stories that we create out of our experience and we let them go. In Sashin, we have that opportunity. Right? There's nothing we have to do during Sashin. So we get to see something come up and a story get created. Right? And then, because we're sitting and we have this container, we might be able to see the fact that we are making this a story. We're making a story. But the story, oftentimes when our stories appear to us, they appear as reality, right? That person did that. They made me feel this way, right? That's what the, our normal mind does. However, because we're in this space where we can slow things down and see things coming before they hit us, maybe, right? We can... And sometimes people use the labeling, which is like, oh, nose consciousness, <laughs> right? We can do this, and this is what Sashin allows us to do. 
Now, so the mono vijnana is, so everything else is just the bare awareness, this bare sense awareness. The mono vijnana is kind of the, it, it's the beginning of making an object into a concept. It's considered the mind of this, these other, these five sense doors. And as I said, the, one, of the, one of the functions of it is to make distinctions between the five consciousnesses. But with it, when you think of this triad, right? So you've got uh, sense object, sense organ, sense consciousness. All of those kind of come up to a sense object and sense uh, consciousness, sorry, sense object and sense organ touch, consciousness is born. Mano Vijnana is over here and it sees, it takes that consciousness takes it as its own and creates a concept out of it. But so far, again, we haven't created necessarily created a self, but we have started to do this splitting. And then Manas comes in, and it pulls from Alaya all of your past experiences. It contextualizes the experience you're having right now and creates a story out of it. So Manas is this intellection, this uh, mentation or cog cogitation, it's interesting because in this whole scenario, it makes it sound like Manas is just really bad and we should get rid of it. Right? However, Manas is, even though it's unwieldy and we misuse it, it is actually the, ref the capacity that we have to reflect It's where deliberation occurs. We can weigh our choices. Uh, we can make discernments. Now, Manas as itself is basically delusive in the sense that it divides experience in, into self and object, external and internal. And it creates this story that it then takes as real. And that's the biggest issue with it, is it takes the story as real. If Manas didn't take the story as real, but took it as a story, what would it be like? Imagine in your own experience when something comes up and it's a story that you fiercely believe. You know, it could be, think of, you know, just think of politics today, right, as an example. When the, you think it's real, it has the power to disrupt your whole system. But if you think of it as, or if you see it, if you apprehend it as, oh, here's an appearance without judging it, in, without creating a real, oh, this is how it is. It's not that you don't, you're not, you haven't lost touch with so-called everyday reality, but you're not infusing it with this fixedness that we normally do. Does that sound like it's liberative? Any, uh, yes, Maureen, I see you wrinkling yeah, your crazy. nose a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about that. If you're, uh, I was thinking, right, you could have like a part two, you could have like a part that says, oh, this is good, but another part that says, well, maybe it's not good, you know, your shit comes blah, blah, blah. But if you're like being chased by a, you know, a murderer or, you know, a dog, a bunny and dog, 
you're not gonna right. So evolution from an evolutionary perspective, you know, we're we survive. We're here. We're all here. We're seeking survivors. Yeah. Sisters are like we're not gonna be thinking about that. We're running. You know. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's kind of part of who yes. we are. It's mm-hmm. like non-deliberative because it's it's how the you know you gotta be able to live in the world, right? I mean, right. I know, the, I, the question is, do you need to have the concept? Did our forebears need a concept of saber-toothed tiger? necessarily the concept or was it enough to have the sense consciousness arise for Alaya to do its thing and reveal its interconnection with other things that have happened in the past that's what they needed for they action needed to happen right they needed that whoa they had it right well modest i mean you can think of it as creating the story and i think the um you know the example that comes up is the in in buddhism early buddhism is the one of the arrow hitting Right. So you're struck by an arrow. What do you do? Do you reflect on the person who struck you with the arrow and their motivations? And do you think of, you know, there's all kinds of things that you could think about. Or do you just pull the arrow out? And ideally, you pull the arrow out before you think about all these other things. You're, you respond. You're, but that doesn't require Manas to do that. Manas is the one that creates the story. The response can happen without the story. And you can actually create the story, but see it as a story. That doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't have realness in its conventional aspect. The murderer is chasing me, (laughs) right? That's a story. Do you want to sit there and deliberate over whether this really a murderer or if it's, you know, if I'm, you know, maybe I'm immortal. I don't know that I'm not immortal or, you know, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and doing that would actually lead to probably lead to uh, sure death. Right. Yes. But would Manas also be the thing that I, I thought you were going to this story where you, you see the rope and think it's the snake. You know, like it's false pattern recognition. It's like because there are these things that threaten me. Oh, that's a threat. That's a threat. That's right. a threat. Yeah, you can have over overactive imagination in that sense. Right. But yeah, in terms of survival, a threat to the me. Right. Right. Cool. Um, I'm trying to think about these things as a as a system and having seven different things. If you forget about Manas existing, the notion of there still being some kind of thing, like even if um, there is some, I'm conscious of something and the ego is not involved, there is still some kind of notion of centrality um, and there being something which is perceiving that thing over there Mm -hmm. regardless of whether or not there's some uh, self-attached to that. Right. Yeah. And so are, are these consciousnesses, um, are, are they, are, are you kind of supposed to think about them as one system which is the, the kind of the uh, a point of view, I suppose? Um, mm-hmm. Like a, a, yeah. a, a cent- centrality, I guess. It, I, I don't really have the words to describe what I'm... I think I know what you're, you're, you're getting at. I, but think of it in terms of the wave in the water. When you have a wave in water, is it separate from the water? 
or is it an indi- is it can you think of it as an instance an individual wave in some sense if you think of that we have we have evolved to have these sense consciousnesses right and these sense organs in particular so like on our body or within our body we have photosensitive cells that respond to light right this is evolved in us we have you know the same thing with our hearing and our smell and our taste right and touch the physical the sensations body consciousness we have evolved all evolved to have these receptors right does that mean that we're separate from what it evolved out of or is it an instantiation of like think of ourselves as waves in water the uh description of Suzuki Roshi Suzuki Roshi gives of the waterfall at Yosemite when he's talking about the water that's falling off the cliff and going down and it's such a long height that you can see these individual droplets that are all simultaneously falling and then at the end of their descent they they go back into the full one river right but the entire time that they're falling they've been individual are they separate from the water so in the same sense if you think about our own how we have you know I'll just talk about myself i've emerged from this soup <laughs> right the soup of matter and energy and existence of the universe i've emerged out of it as a wave and i have a duration and then the conditions that that made me emerge will cease and i this body of mine too will cease right along the way now if i go around thinking that i'm actually special <laughs> and i'm not really connected to the universe or um or if i am connected then it's actually there put there for my use right that's a very different way of going about the world about living in the world than to think of it as i'm an i'm an instance that's you know conventionally speaking we can say this is mako it's not cole right and conventionally speaking that's true right it's not to say that we're going we're not going to kind of smooth everything out so much that we can't use language anymore The trick is that when we use our language do I think of myself as inherently separate from you because if I did then that would have a diff- that would make a difference in our relationship as well it would play out differently right i might push you out of the way when i'm at the grocery store <laughs> or honk at you in the in the car but if i see you as a manifestation of the same soup. It's very different. It's a very different feeling. Yeah. But just like the instinct to run from the tiger, this instinct to self must be selective. It's a useful concept. Give me an example. Well, I think that it's that very nature of of seeing yourself as separate that Makes you run from the tiger. Because <laughs> um, in a way, the tiger is attracted to you, just like 
Yeah. A fly yeah. is attracted to the averse smell of the rotting rat. Right. Know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so these individual different these. So in the same way that I was speaking with Cole about this wave in the water, right? When you run away from the tiger, it's not like you're doing something that's against our true nature, right? Because conventionally speaking, this is, it's the case that if you don't run, you're going to be eaten, <laughs> right? And conventionally speaking, that's true. But the problem that happens is that we think of ourself as being somehow completely on our own, not interconnected. And this is going to lead to, we're going to have to stop. We'll, well, I think we're way over time. Yes, we're way over time. But um, maybe tomorrow we're going to get into with these, these other pieces of this, this kind of creation story of the self. Right? In particular, the three natures, which is a, probably the hardest part of this text, is to get a, get a sense of what these three natures of all phenomena are. I'll just say what they are right now before we close. There's the imagined nature. There's the other dependent nature. And then there's the thoroughly established nature. And all phenomena have these three natures the imagined, the other dependent, meaning it can't be separated from the entire system. And then the thoroughly established, which is the enlightened nature or the awake nature of things just as they are. So we'll, we'll get into that tomorrow a little bit. And again, let me just reiterate and say to the extent that your system, that your connection to yourself and what's happening for you uh, allows you to settle and let go and be present to your open awareness. You know, if you feel this interest or this, you know, to look into this, to think about it, you know, to do so in a way that is gentle and non-abrasive. So if you find yourself sitting there spinning on this stuff during zazen, don't do that during zazen. Like let it just let it go. Like notice, oh, here's a thought, here's an insight, here's a concept, here's something that really rubbed me the wrong way. Notice all of it. Be intimate with all of it as it comes and goes. But again, this zazen is for for watching, for witnessing this transformation of consciousness happening. So as we slow down and sit, we might notice things and be like, oh yeah, that's an example of that. You know, note it, allow it to be there fully, and then next breath. Right? You don't need to hold on to, you don't need to grasp any of it. I think that's the main thing I want to say, is that don't grasp at this teaching.